Good morning. If you take your Bible and turn to the book of Jude, if you didn't catch that. Um, we're going to be we're going to be there here in just a few minutes. That's the last book before the book of Revelation in the New Testament's page 1074 in my Bible, if that helps you at all. And um, I want to welcome you today. I'm Aaron Cole, the senior pastor. It's great to have you with us uh, on this weekend. I think there's a special reward in heaven for people that come to church when it's really, really nice out or when it's like bitterly cold, and uh, which we have those extremes, right? So, um, so there's, there's lots of points in heaven for you guys. Um, we're beginning a brand new series uh, called Hey Jew that I'll be doing this week and for the next two weeks for a three-week series. It's, it's going to be totally different than probably anything we've done for a couple of reasons. Uh, kind of give you a little background. Um, as a communicator, as a pastor, as a preacher, and, and someone that talks to basically the same group of people week in and week out, um, one of the things that, um, that uh, I do, that this, I, I enjoy, is telling stories. Uh, I love to hear stories. Uh, stories help me learn. They kind of hook an idea on there. It's almost like a mnemonic device for me. Not demonic, but mnemonic. Uh, and uh, for some of you, oh my goodness. And, um, and so um, it's one of those deals. And, and, and before you think I'm kind of like, oh, man, this guy's one of those watered-down preacher, communicator types, um, it, it's interesting to me that just a little soapbox issue for me. For, I grew up in church my whole life, and one of the things about church is it's amazing to me how the Bible is so awesome. It has such cool and just creative, and God's this creative being and just so incredible. But yet, um, preachers, pastors, communicators can take something that's so incredible and make it so boring. Yeah, that amazes me. I'm sure you've never heard a boring pastor or a boring preacher. Yeah, don't raise your hand. Okay, and don't point. But anyhow, the, the, the reality is, is it just drives me nuts. I, 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 it's one of my pet peeves. I'm just like, it, it, it's... You're not doing justice to the text. There's so much more there, and it's so awesome, and it's so incredible, and, and just, you know, you do us all a disservice if you'd go, just go do something else with your life. But anyhow, um, not you, but the, these boring preachers. And so the thing is, is that most of the time, preaching in our context is 90% information and 10% application. And people walk out of the church and there are a couple of Greek words or Hebrew words, maybe. They've got some ideas and some multiple syllable words that they don't know how to pronounce. And they're completely lost. But they feel good about themselves because at least they showered, shaved, and they came to church, right? And they go on, but they don't get anything. And, and so I, I kind of cut my teeth preaching to teenagers and to students. And there's no way you're going to get their attention that way. You have to tell stories. You have to communicate. You have to take these timeless truths and put them in a way in which people can understand and for a long time, I just thought, well, you know, is this, is this biblical? Is it not biblical? In Bible college, theology, seminary, they kind of teach you a little bit different style. Until I realized that that's exactly what Jesus did. When you read the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find out that Jesus did 10% information and 90% application. And, and he had a spiritual word for his stories that were called parables. Now, if I say I like to tell parables, you go, wow, so deep and so theological is he? parables. Our pastor's just like Jesus. If I say stories, you go, he's really shallow, isn't he? It's the same thing because a parable is a story with a meaning. And Jesus understood, even in the first century, on those hills in Galilee and Judea, that the only way those sheep farmers and those, those business people were going to get it was not by just hammering them with, 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 the, with, the, with the, um, the Old Testament, but was going to be able to land the plane and put it into parables, into stories with meanings in which they get it. 
So most of the time, my process is, as I begin to pray, and, and I, I can tell you pretty much where we're going all the way to the end of the year, uh, I kind of work my preaching calendar six to 12 months in advance. Um, I do that for two reasons. Have you ever been to church where you thought the pastor got his sermon together about 15 minutes, maybe on the way from his study to the platform? A lot of them do that. Don't tell them I told you that. But, but, and, and, and it sounds like that. And you kind of think that and you go, no, I feel bad thinking that. But it does because it's just discombobulated. And it's, it's, it's like a barbed wire fence. You know, there's a long line and there's a point here and a point there and a point here and a point there. And it does has no meaning or no connection to anything. And, but you feel good about it again because you shaved and showered and you came to church. And you did something spiritual for the day. But you didn't learn anything. So it doesn't really do you any value. And so I really say, God, what do you want? Where, where are you taking us? We're all this, this, this um, body of believers, and we're all on this journey together, and we're wanting to reach people. And there's new people that are coming in. And so, Holy Spirit, give me wisdom and insight, uh, knowledge and discernment and where you want to go. So I plan things out, and typically it starts with really God laying a subject. Uh, let's talk about relationships. We need to talk about finances. We need to talk about crisis. We need to talk about work. We need to talk about, about uh, repentance. We need to talk about uh, patience. We need to talk about gentleness, whatever the subject may be. And then I began to kind of mine the scriptures and go, God, what does your word say to us about these subjects? And then we kind of put together a, a, a message um, uh, and, 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 and everything. This three-week segment has been the biggest wrestling match I've had with God because I wanted to go a completely different direction. Matter of fact, I've never done this, but I actually, in our April board meeting, went to the elder board and said, here's what I'm thinking. I want to throw this at you and see what you think. And because I'm trying to convince God that, God, I really think this would be a much better message series than where you want me to go over here. If you ever tried to convince God that you've, yeah, for pastors, it's like what we're going to communicate on. And, uh, and so, I know, just anyhow. And so, um, God won, and uh, good thing, right? And so, <laughs> we're at church. And so, the deal is, is that I'm going to do something totally out of my box. Number one, I've never preached, as, as much as I can remember, I've never preached a message from the book of Jude, ever. I don't know why, I just, I just haven't. I've read it multiple times. Uh, matter of fact, uh, if I wanted to feel like a real champion, I could say I read the book of Jude because it's only got one chapter. And, uh, right, it's kind of like the shortest book, verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, and I memorized scripture today, hallelujah. So I read the entire, I read an entire book, the book of Jude, you know, it's not quite like the book of Exodus or Leviticus or Deuteronomy, but, but it's a book in its own entirety still yet. And, and so I just, what I really felt the Lord leading is to go to this passage of scripture and to take a journey for the next three weeks and let the passage Going into it with no preconceived ideas, no subject matter, no anything. Just let the passage bring forth what God wants to say to us. So it's a little different because typically I really feel like God lays a concept or a subject matter and then I begin to mind scripture and say, this is what it says. And I really feel like this is where we are. Today, I just want to dive into this text and take a journey and let it speak to us. So I would encourage you, if you want to know where we're going next week, we're going to be in the book of Jude. You want to know where we're going the week after? We're going to be in the book of Jude. It's not going to be a long journey, but it's going to be a fun trip. So Jude chapter 1, because there's only one chapter, verse number 1, we're going to read these first seven verses, and it says this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called and who are loved by God, the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Verse 3, dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about salvation we share, I felt I had to urge you to contend for the faith that was once entrusted for all saints. For certain men 
whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you, and their godless men, who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality, and they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign, the Lord. Though you already know all of this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Verse 6. And the angels who didn't keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, those he's kept in darkness and bound in everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Verse 7. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion, and they, ser they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Now, it's on the back side of your bulletin if you want to follow along, but we're just going to kind of walk through these seven verses. And again, I'm just going to tell you what it says, um, and y'all allow you to really feel in more of the application to that. Um, and uh, so let's, let's buckle our seatbelts, and here we go. The, the first thing that we're going to talk about are the vitals that Jude talks about in verse 1 and verse 2. First of all, we see that the writer is Jude. We don't always know who the writer of some of the books are. We know that God is the author, but who wrote the books, we don't always know. We can speculate, but we really don't know. But in this particular case, we know that it was Jude. It's interesting, he makes two statements about his relationships. Number one, we know that Jude was the brother of James. Now, James was the one who wrote the book of James just a few books back in the New Testament. And James was also thought very highly of in the New Testament church. Uh, James was, uh, was, was, was a disciple. He was an apostle. He was one that was very highly regarded in the New Testament church and was very God used in a great way in the first century to develop the church. And so, uh, so he's kind of saying, hey, I'm the brother of Billy Graham. I'm the brother of this great, well-known communicator, pastor, preacher, church leader. So it gives him a little bit of, of uh, credibility, if you will, because people would have known who James was probably more so than what they would have known who Jude was. Although Jude's a disciple, he's never considered an apostle and never claims to be an apostle, which is a whole other story for a whole other day, but yet he was a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what's also interesting. Jude, we know because of James' relationship, is the half-brother to Jesus. Now, let me explain the half-brother thing, because in our context, half-brother would mean there was probably was a divorce and a remarriage, and you got stepbrothers. Uh, that's not the case. We realize that because uh, Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, Mary, but was conceived of by the Holy Spirit, God, and the two came together and conceived Jesus Christ. So all of the siblings that were born, all of, excuse me, all the children that were born to Mary, all the siblings of Jesus would have been considered half-brothers and sisters because their father would have been earthly and not God the Father. So he's a half-brother to Jesus. What's interesting, though, is he never, ever, ever makes that claim. He doesn't go, oh, and by the way, I'm Jesus' brother. Now, I'm telling you, if I had been Jude and I had been writing this book or been the writer of this book, I would have told you, and by the way, yeah, my name is Jude Christ, and you spell it C-H-R-I-S-T. It's like when I walk into a store and here in Milwaukee, and I go, my name's Aaron Cole, and they go, K-O-H-L? No, it's C-O-L-E. So, you know, because it's like I'm not part of the Cole family dynasty, I, I'm, you know, I'm part of the Redneck Hicks, the Hatfields and the McCoys, and uh, my brother is Cole Hahn, but no, I'm just, but I would have taken that claim. I would have said, oh, it's interesting that he doesn't. And his only relationship with Jesus, he says, is that I am a servant. And you take that word into the original language, to the Greek, and that word, there's two meanings. It, it, there's a, a maidservant or a manservant, which would be someone that would work for, and then there's a bondservant or a slave. 
And the, and the Greek word that's used here for the word servant is not the one that chooses to work. It's the one that has been enlisted to work. It's, it's the slave. And he says, I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. The humility and the, and the integrity and the relationship that he gives with Jesus is one that goes, wow. Because I would have powered up on that. I would have taken that card. But he doesn't. And his only relationship that he gives to Jesus Christ is that he's kind of like one beggar to another beggar where to find food. He's a slave. He's completely submitted. He's completely abandoned. He's got this reckless abandonment to follow Jesus wherever he goes and to do whatever Jesus wants him to do. So he takes no claim. And what's interesting about that is scholarship tells us that Jude did not believe in Christ until after the resurrection. So he, but think about it, if your younger brother or your older brother said he was the Messiah, you would have beat him up, right? Made fun of him. Yeah, there's the Messiah. Watch what he's going to do. Ah! I mean, you would have. You, you, right? Don't go, wow, you're talking about Jesus Christ. No, put it in the context of family. Just put your brother's Larry name, you know, Larry, your brother. Put, put his name there. I mean, that, that's what it would have been. And, and the reality is, is that he, after he saw the life that Jesus lived, after he saw what he did on the cross, after he saw that he rose again, then he believed. You know what that says to me? It's just like us. Jude is just like you and I. After we saw the life of Christ, after we heard the stories and the miracles and the signs and wonders, after we received that great good news that God so loved you and me, and we saw the death on the cross, and we saw the resurrection, and we saw the miraculous power of God, then we believed. We didn't believe it at first claim. We didn't believe it when he first said, I'm the Messiah, just follow me. Okay, I'll do it. We had to see it and experience it. And some of you in this room, you're still kicking tires on that. You're still going, I want to check and see. Totally cool. We're glad to have you. You're welcome to be here. This church exists to, to, to seek and to serve the, the lost and the, and the believers in this community. So Jude basically makes that claim. Now, the date that we get this thing is, scholarship tells us this was probably written in 65 AD. So the New Testament church is 30 some odd years old. So it's still relatively young. They're still figuring a lot of things out. And most of the New Testament post the book of Acts, so Romans all the way through Revelation, well, not so much Revelation, but, but Romans through Jude, is really the, the leadership of the church and men and women of the church, inspired by the Holy Spirit through God the Father, um, giving correction and giving direction to this exploding, expansive thing. We, we, we know that there were churches, like in the church of Ephesus, it, although it was a built on a house church network where they would meet together on the synagogue on the Sabbath, they were probably somewhere around 100,000 believers just in that one community. So before you think, wow, Joel Osteen and Lakewood, that's like a new phenomenon, it's not. Matter of fact, we haven't even in this country hit what happened in the first century. So it's amazing to think what God can do and what God is able to do. And so these leaders like Jude and James and, 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 and Peter and Paul and John and, and John Mark and, and Barnabas and all of these, they're, they're guiding the New Testament church and, and, and they're, they're helping all these believers figure out how to, to keep the, the, the spirit of the law without becoming legalistic and, and how to understand the grace of God without, without becoming excessive and, and falling away. So he writes that with that whole context in mind. Now, the next thing in your notes, the purpose is found in verse number three. It's to defend the truth. He says there that I wanted to write, with, write you about a totally different subject, but God laid this on my heart and told me to tell you to defend the truth, that we're here to, to contend for the truth. 
Let's pick this apart a little bit because it's real simple, but yet it's got a lot of meaning to it. Because some of it on face value, you go, oh, I get that. Well, let's look at it. The word defend would simply mean that to, to, he's bringing them back to remembrance of what was written to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6. That we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and rulers of darkness and everything that would exalt itself before the, for, for the glory and the power of God. We're in a war. So the Bible says, so therefore put on the armor of God. So let your feet be shod with the preparation of readiness by the gospel of peace. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Girt your loins about with the spirit of truth. Put on the helmet of salvation. Take the sword, which is the word of God, and the shield of faith. And go into battle because you are soldiers in the army of the Lord. He's bringing the church. And he's speaking to the church and saying, hey, don't forget. Hey, don't check out. Hey, don't forget your armor. We're in a battle. And many times we're, we're the offense and we're taking the, the kingdom of God is moving forward and we're advancing and we're marching and moving onward and upward. But there are times where we will be under attack. There are times where the enemy will come in like a flood. There will be times where we'll be pressed and perplexed and pressured on every single side. Yet we will still win because Jesus Christ is our advocate to the Father. And in the, word, in the end, God's word says we win. And so when he says defend or contend, he's telling you, hey, remember, church, you're in a battle. Because here's who he's speaking to. He's speaking to Jewish converts, people that were raised in church, in the synagogue, if you will, that are Christ followers and new believers. He's not speaking to, uh, in, in this book, he's not speaking to people that are away from God. He's speaking to people that, in, in, our, in our terminology, would have grown up in church and know better. So that hits people like me right where I live. He's kind of getting in the proverbial kitchen, rattling the pots and pans, and saying, first of all, you need to remember that this isn't the good ship lollipop. We're on the battleship. This isn't the love boat. This is the battleship. And yes, we win, and God wants us to prosper and, and bless our lives, but we have to understand we are in a battle, and we are soldiers in the army of the Lord. You know, remember that little song you sing when you were a kid? I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never fly over the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. You remember that? I sing that. Why can't Eva do that? I don't know. But anyhow... The deal is he's reminding everybody, hey, we're in the battle. And there's an onslaught. And the use of the word defense, first of all, tells us that we're in a battle. But secondly, we're being attacked. Here's what's interesting to me. This book was written in 65 AD, but it could be written in the 21st century. And it would still have pertinent meaning. Have you read any of the newspapers this week? Have you watched? Have you gotten online? Have you seen the news going around the world? The faith in Jesus Christ that was attacked in the first century when Jews were writing this, the same faith in Jesus Christ is being attacked today. And the same protesters and the same junk and the same garbage that was doled out there is being doled out now. Why? Because it's the same enemy. It's the same adversary. It's the same devil. Well, I don't know that I believe in a real devil. Well, dude, that's your problem. I'm telling you, it's real. And I'm telling you, you, if you're a Christ follower, you have a target on your back. And I'm telling you, the local church has a target on its back. That's the reason why anytime a local church goes into a community and plants a church and they buy property and they build a building, it's the hardest thing to do because you are taking dominion from what the devil thinks is his. Woo, I'm about to preach up in here. Okay, the, deal, the deal is that's it because he thinks it's his and he doesn't like it. He's mad. He's crabby patty. He doesn't like it. 
And Judah's just saying, remember, remember, we have a responsibility and we're in a battle. And I would say today, remember, if you're a Christ follower, we are in a battle. There's a battle for your kids and don't think there's not. There's a battle for your marriage. Don't think there's not. There's a battle over your morality. Don't think there's not. There's a battle over the church. And, I, and again, you know me. I'm not some evangelical Bible thumper, but I'm telling you, it's out there. And we've got to be wise, and we've got to understand. But we also have to understand, it's not the people that are standing up that are speaking against it that the problem. It's not them. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. It's not a political party. It's not a person. You can't put a name or a face to this. It's the devil. It's the enemy of your soul and my soul. Now, the other thing is, that where are we defending? We're defending the truth. It's in your notes. The truth is a head issue and a heart issue. It's got two parts to it, just real simply. The head issue is that, first of all, we're defending the truth, which is God's word. So we all get that. This is the word of the ever-living God. It's yes and it's Amen. So you're saying, Aaron, that you believe that the book that you're holding in your hand is literal. Yes. And spiritual. And there's figurative language, but it is, it's literal. And it's either prescriptive or descriptive, but it's God's spoken word, and it's life. And it will never return void. That's the reason why every weekend at Life Church, we always say, take your Bibles, open your Bibles, because this is the most important thing you're going to do today. The most important thing you're going to hear is not me and not my little corny jokes but the most important thing you're going to hear is God's word, because that's what won't return void. And um, so he says, it's a, it, it's a head issue. It's God's word. You have to understand that we're defending the word of God. Now, there's a heart issue, and the heart issue is that there's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. See, it's not enough that you just believe that God is and that Jesus is and that he can, but you've got to accept it personally. The difference between the head issue and the heart issue is called religion. Religion tells you just believe that there's a God. Just believe that he gave his only son. Just believe that he can die on the cross for you. Just believe that. Well, I got news for you. The demons in hell believe that because they tremble, the Bible says, at the very mention of Jesus' name. So to believe that Jesus is the son of God is not enough. To believe that God loves you and wants to save you is not enough. The only thing that changes you, not even going to church and hearing me, I know you should get something for that, but it's not enough. Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter, nine, verse 10, first, chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, he says that if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart God's word, you'll be saved. There's a personal connection. And what's interesting to me about Metro Milwaukee is, I'm telling you, 99% of the people that we live and do life with, they believe in God. They believe in the Virgin Mary. They believe in the Virgin Birth. They believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son. They believe in death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. They get it, but they don't live it because it's not personal. You go, well, how do you know that? Because you ask. Don't ask the question, are you born again? That was only used one time in Scripture, and although it's pertinent, it, 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 it dilutes itself. Ask people, are you a devoted follower of Jesus Christ? Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't go Jesus freak on me, all right? Don't just... Because most people are like the Doobie Brothers. Jesus is all right. That's kind of their philosophy. Yeah, he's God. He's everything. And my grandmother has his humongous family Bible with a family tree on the coffee table. And I get all that. But there's no personal connection to their life because they've never personally accepted him. They believe that he is, but not that he will. 
And I'm telling you, that's the difference. Because Jesus didn't come for religion. He didn't die for religion. He came for a relationship. And the truth of God's word is that it is God's word, but unless it becomes personal with you, it, then it, it's not alive. It's just sitting on your grandmother's coffee table. But the moment that you say, dear Jesus, come into my heart and come into my life. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I believe that you are who the Bible says you are. Be my Lord, be my savior. Boom, what happened cataclysmically in, in, the, in the internal portals of your heart and of your life. The power of God goes from there to here and he changes you. That's what we call the salvation experience. And some of you are here today, and you're like this close. And I'm believing that by the end of the service, you're going to say, you know what, man, I've decided to follow Christ. No turning back. I'm going to lay it all down, and I'm going to do that. Why? Because it's the truth, because it's going to go from here to here. And the biggest distance that the truth has to travel is from your head to your heart. But that's where the work of the Holy Spirit comes in. And I can see it on some of your faces right now. That's exactly what's happening. And I can tell you, every Sunday since Easter... Every weekend since Easter, there have been adults every weekend that said, I've decided to go from here to here. They get it here. Most of us get it here. We're not stupid. We're not morons. But we, but, 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 but we, we, we lose this from here to here because this is I have to live it. This I'm changed by. This I become a soldier in the army of the Lord. This I begin to put on the, 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 the shoes of peace and the loin, girt, my, girt my loins with the spirit of, uh, with, with, with spirit of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. And, and I'm engaged in the battle. And that's a big decision. And it is. But that's what he's saying we're defending. So let's go on to verse number four. Verse number four, he talks about that who are the offenders of the truth? Who are the people that we're defending the truth from? Who are the people that we're in battle with? Well, he says it right there. It's false teachers and false teaching. False teachers and false teaching. I want to read this, this verse one more time because I think it's powerful to explain what's going on here, what he's trying to say. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless. Why? Because they changed the grace of God into a license for immorality. And secondly, they deny Jesus Christ, the only sovereign Lord. What makes these people false? It's in your notes. It's because they twist the truth. They twist the truth. What's the truth? God's word. The head knowledge and the heart knowledge of God's word. They take it and they just modify it. They just kind of shave the edges. They just kind of, that's called perversion. You understand that? I mean, we use this word pervert or perversion, and we think immediately of sex. But, but the word perversion at the very beginning, at the root of it, means to take truth and just twist it. Just slightly adjust it. Just slightly move it. And I don't mean to get into like a chemical conversation, but, 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 but in chemical compounds, and when you're in chemistry 101, and you realize that how many, how many oxygen, you know, to make, to make water, so many hydrogen, so many oxygen come together. If you have more oxygen or more hydrogen that you, than you need, it, it can turn into something that's totally not what the molecular structure makes all the difference in the world. And what happens is, is the Bible says, woe to the man that adds to or takes away from. That... God's word is yes and amen, which means it's the beginning and the end. It's final. There doesn't need to be any more attitude or taken away from it. It's all sufficient. It's all that we need. But false teachers or false teaching comes in, and they take the truth, and they just twist it. That's what makes it so dangerous. Because, again, it's, 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 it's the, what the Bible says that the enemy of your soul and my soul, the devil, masquerades as an angel of light. See, because if he comes in with horns and a pitchfork, we're like, no, no, no. But if he comes in subtly, just in little subtle ways here and there, we're okay. We'll bite on that. 
And so these offenders are people that basically are perverting the truth. They're just twisting the truth. They're just taking it and making it a little bit different. Because some of what they say makes sense. Some of what they say even has like a biblical precedent for it. But, but, but they're taking it beyond the bounds of what, it is, what it's meant. And, 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 and they're making it say something that it's not. And, and, and let, let's just unpack this verse for a minute. It'll give us a lot of insight. He says, first of all, not that this can happen, that this has happened. And I would tell you, if it's happening in in 65 AD, it is so much more happening today. This isn't something that is possible. It's something that is occurred, has occurred. And the Bible says that they've wormed their way in or they've slipped their way in or they've kind of snuck their way in. They've just kind of ingrained themselves and embedded themselves, almost like a sleeper cell. And they've just kind of come in. And it's happened. And he's saying, you need to be aware because you're defenders of the truth. And what are you defending? You're defending it against these false teachers, against people that are taking the truth and they're slightly twisting it. People that are taking the truth and they're slightly moving it. That's the reason why I really don't care what you think and you really don't care what I think. All we really care about is what does God's word say? Because when we start getting on what you think and what I think, what our denomination thinks, what this church thinks and that, we will be like a termite in a yo-yo. It will be an endless conversation that will never, never result in anything. And so, so Jude is saying, go back to Scripture, go back to the truth, go back to the knowledge and the heart of, of, of truth. And here's the danger. The danger is that they've taken the cross of Jesus Christ and the grace that he paid by his blood, and they've cheapened it. Well, how have they cheapened it? It says it right there. He says they've cheapened it because they made grace a welcome mat to wipe your feet off on. It's given you a license for immorality. Mm, we're going to go here for a minute. Who's he talking to? Because some of you want me to really rail on, on, on the liberal media. Some of you want me to really la- ra- rail on liberal politics. Some of you just say, I read this in the paper. You need to get up there, Pastor, and preach it. No, he's talking to you and to me. Remember, the audience is Christians, Christ followers, Jewish Christ followers, people that were raised in the synagogue. They were raised in church. They know better. And they just kind of slip slide in a way. They just kind of do a power slide over and get out of the way into what they want to do. And the problem is, is that what they're doing is, is that they're going and sinning. And they're going, Jesus will forgive me. So they premeditate their activity and go, you know, I'm just going to go get drunk. And he'll forgive me. And when he forgives me, right, there's grace, man. It's the same stuff that's happening today. Bro, just it's, bro. Brother. Don't sweat it. It's just a little alcohol. Got a little tipsy. Got a little drunk. It's just a party. Oh, they're just teenagers. They're just sowing wild oats. Oh, man, it's just a casual sexual encounter. I mean, we didn't, like, have intercourse. It was just oral. It was just, we just got a little handsy. I mean, what's the big deal? Oh, man, it's, you know, dude, we're, we're young adults, and, and we're trying things out, and with the divorce rate skyrocketing, we just kind of want to just check things out. And so just, you know, this is for life, man, and I want to make sure that the sex is going to be good. So we just go and have just a little bit of sex, and if it's good, then yeah, great. It's called false teaching. It's called perversion of the truth. What you're doing is making a mockery out of Jesus, what Jesus Christ did on Calvary's cross. And he's not talking to the world. He's talking to us. 
And he's saying, you've been dead and asleep way too long. You you have forgotten that you're a soldier in the army of the Lord, that there's a battle and that you're to defend the truth. And what's happened is these false teachers, this false doctrine has wormed its way in and they've come in and they've begun to tell you that it's okay to do what you want to do and and it's okay to have casual sex. Because he talks about just in these seven verses, he gives an illustration of Sodom and Gomorrah and he uses sexual immorality there and he uses sexual immorality here. Within seven seven verses, he's talked about this subject twice. Why? because it's a problem in the New Testament church. And I would go as far to say it's a problem in the church in America today. And I'm not talking about out there. I'm talking about in here. You woke up this morning in a bed with someone that you're not married to? That's called sin. You're, you're half lit from, from a party last night? Don't call that a business meeting. That's called sin. You, 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 and some of you are going, wow, dude, he must have ate his Cheerios this morning a little bit. It's the word. I'm telling you, I wrestled with God because I didn't want to go here, but this is what it says. And there are some of you in this room, the next few moments, I'm going to give you an opportunity not to repent to me. You don't owe me anything, but between you and God to make some things right because you need to clear some things out. Pornography is wrong. It's called sin. A a, a lascivious lifestyle of sexual immorality uh, and the intent to sin and uh, and with with a premeditated thought that God will forgive me is wrong. And the Bible says to those of us that know what sin is and we do it anyway, it's double wrong for us. It's a double jeopardy situation for us. Why? Because we cheapen the grace of what Jesus Christ did on Calvary's cross. See, just because I'm not wearing socks today and I wear blue jeans doesn't mean I'm light on the gospel. It's what it says. Some of you read me going number five, right? But what he says is, is that beware, because this is happening. And some of you are going, oh, I don't believe this. Oh, I don't believe this. Yeah, believe it. We don't live in a Christian world anymore. And maybe that's kind of good. Maybe we've been too asleep for too long. But it's a reality. And it's a reality that I encounter with people that are not, I'm not talking about if you're not a Christ follower, I am not hammering on you. Matter of fact, you can stand up here and say amen with me and we'll just hurl it with everybody. I'm talking about me and people that are just like me that are Christ followers. It is high time that we get into God's word, we look at God's word, and we compare our lives to God's word. You don't compare your life to the pastor. You don't compare your life to a person across the aisle. You don't compare your life to a neighbor. You compare your life to Jesus and to the word of God. Amen. It's true. And so the reality is, is that's what he's saying here. I didn't write it. Don't email me. Email God at God at hotmail.com. He has an account. Don't email me. I, I'm just telling you what it says. And I'm not angry or mad at you because I'm telling you I, he would be preaching to me too and, um, because I'm, I'm a Christ follower. And so he says, beware of this. Now, he gives a warning danger in verses 5, 6, and 7. Let's look at this. The warning is of disobedience to the truth. And he gives three different examples. The first example that he gives is God's people. In the Old Testament, God brought them out of bondage. He was taking them to the promised land. But in the wilderness, the wheels came off and they began to radically disobey God multiple times. To the point, one, one time, the whole earth opened up and swallowed people whole. I mean, how do you make that boring? That's what I want to tell some of these boring preachers. That's, that's fascinating. So um, anyhow, and, and so they were destroyed. Why? Because of their own disobedience. Then the second example he gives us in verse 6 is the angels. So we're talking about like you would think these people would be impervious to sin or impervious to falling away. 
But the reality is, is because of their own disobedience, they, they usurped God's authority and went with Satan, uh, Lucifer, and were cast out of heaven. A third of the angels went that direction. But because of their disobedience, they were cast out. And then he talks just about Sodom and Gomorrah, which is like the, the stereotypic uh, example in the Old Testament of just rampant sin and immorality. And again, he goes through the whole sex thing again. And, um, and he's reminding them because there's sexual activity that's immoral that's happening uh, there. And uh, they disobeyed and they were destroyed. God rained down fire from heaven. Um, whether you think that's politically correct or not, again, don't take it up with me, take it up with him. He did it, I didn't, but I'm just telling you what the book says. What's interesting to me about this is that anytime in scripture, and this happens many times, you'll see repetition. And you, typically repetition happens in threes. Like in the New Testament, it says, seek, ask, and knock. Uh, the door will be open to you. It, it, what, what God is doing and what the writer is doing there is trying to underscore, try, trying to underscore, trying to bold, trying to give emphasis to. So anytime you see like repetition, you go, those three words, there's various nuances, but they basically are saying the same thing. I got it the first time. Why did they do that? It's because God's wanting to scream and get your attention. So it's interesting that Jude uses three repetitive examples to get your attention. Happen here, happen here, and happen here. It's also interesting, too, that if you can find something happen, you can find an occurrence in three places in Scripture, it also makes it a doctrine. Because it's, 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 it's the, the, the text basically proofs itself. There's some theological thoughts there. But the essence of what he's saying is it doesn't matter who you are. You're God's people, you're an angel in heaven, or you're totally outside the will of God and you're a sinner living in Sodom and Gomorrah. If you disobey the truth, God's word, there's a consequence to pay. And the consequence is destruction. And you go, well, that's just not fair. No, what's fair is, is that God's telling us. What, what's fair is, is that God loved you and I so much that he gave his only son that we don't have to live and die that way. And that we can be redeemed from the curse. And what the reality is, is that God didn't institute that. Although God had, because of his righteousness, had to, had to implement the curse, it wasn't God that caused the curse. It was us. And before you blame Adam and Eve, if you and I had been in the garden, we would have made the same jacked up mistake they did. We would have eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We would have, we would have crossed the line and we'd all be here. It doesn't matter who you put in that place. That's who we are because we are flawed humanity. Because we are not rock'em sock'em robots. We are free moral agents and we get to make choices and decisions. And because of that and our curiosity, it gets us in a whole lot of trouble. And why is this dangerous? Why is he talking about this? Because you choose. It's in your notes. It's the last thing in your notes. You choose. Every day of your life, you choose. You choose. I choose. No, man, I gave my life to Jesus Christ 20 years ago. And I made my decision. Then I, I draw, drew the line in the sand. I put the stake in. And oh, no. Listen. To say, I chose 20 years ago, and I'm just going to kind of live my life, is about, makes about as much sense as the guy that told his wife when she asked him, why don't you tell me that you love me? He said, well, we got married 25 years ago, and I told you 25 years ago on the day we got married that I love you. And if that changes, I'll let you know. Pretty stupid, huh? Ladies, amen? Thank you. Woo, I like the ladies section right there. Why? Because it makes absolutely no sense because a marriage is built on a relationship. The same thing is with Jesus Christ and with God. It's built on a relationship. And the deal is, is that every we make a decision to follow Jesus. That's our salvation experience. I get that. I did that. You've done that. Some of you today will make that decision to do that as well. 
But I make a decision every day of my life how I walk out the truth. If I'm faithful to my wife, I'm faithful to God's word. Do I honor his word? Do I honor him? I make a decision every day of my life. And I'll make a decision tomorrow, and I'll make a decision a year from now, and, and, until, and until God comes back or until I die, I will continue to make a succession of decisions to decide to follow Jesus or not. Because at any point in time, I can go, I don't want this anymore. So are you saying my salvation is not secure? No, I'm saying your salvation is very much secure. I'm just saying you and I are not always the most, the most secure of individuals. And I'm saying that, that God's grace is enough and, and he holds us in his righteous right hand and we don't just fall out of it and God, your name, the Lance Book of Life is not some giant chalkboard that God erases your name. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying this, that you and I make decisions every single day and the same way that we enter into a faith with Jesus Christ, we can decide to walk away from it. And at some point in time when we do that over and over and over again, it cheapens the grace of God. And at some point in time, God goes, enough. So where are you today? I'm going to invite some musicians to come up, and I'm going to give you a time just to kind of contemplate that. And as they're setting up, I just want you to hear what I'm, I'm asking you. Where are you today? Because you're either a Christ follower or you're an unbeliever. And if you're a Christ follower, you're doing one of two things. You're either defending the truth, you're a servant, you're, you're a soldier in the army of the Lord. You know, remember, I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry. I may never fly over the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. You're either defending the truth or you're twisting it. I don't get like an option B. No, this isn't multiple choice. I didn't write it. You either are defending the truth of God's word and you're actively involved in it, or you're taking it as a, as a license to do what you want to do. I'm not your judge, but where are you today? And if you're not a Christ follower, I've been as about as straightforward and blunt as I can be. And you may go, dude, there's no way I want to do that. That's fine. It's between you and the Lord. But you may be sitting here today and go, you know what? I got it. I, I get it. And as you've been talking right here, man, I am just about to just, I've got this gut-wrenching, I realize there is stuff in my life and that God deserves better. And I, I, I have head knowledge of God, but I've not made the connection to the heart knowledge, and, and I want to do that today. Here's what I'm going to ask us to do in just a moment. I'm going to ask everyone to bow their heads.